You may be already there, but I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter in the New Testament. This morning I'm going to read chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 through verse 21. My intention is to really focus our study this morning through verse 18, but for the sake of context, we'll read through verse 21. This is God's word. The Apostle Peter wrote, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we pause again in our service to address you and to express our need for you. We are here by your mercy this morning. We recognize that it is all of grace. If you hadn't sent someone to tell us about Jesus, if you hadn't by your spirit convicted us, we would never have come and we certainly wouldn't be here this morning. We do love you. We want to praise you and we are amazed, O God, at your Son, Jesus Christ. And we want to know how to be his people, to live in this time, in this place. And we want to be wise and give heed to the words that your Spirit has given in Scripture. So we pause to ask, not merely for an understanding of the words and the grammar, but that once again your Spirit might take your word and apply it to our hearts that we might know how we might live to please you in these days. Change us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Peter is a precious letter, in part because we see in it the heart of Peter. You might call him not only Apostle Peter, but Pastor Peter. 
And you see his pastoral heart in verses 12 through 15, which we read this morning. He is about to die. He knows this. He doesn't know maybe the exact hour, but he knows and has told us that his laying aside, verse 14, of his earthly dwelling is imminent. It's going to happen soon. Church history holds that Peter was arrested in Rome and died a martyr, being crucified, history holds, upside down because Peter felt himself unworthy to be crucified in the same way as his beloved Lord. Can you imagine? He loved his Lord Jesus so much and was so haunted by the memory of his denial of Christ that when it came time for him as an old man to die, he may have asked them to crucify him upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same way as his Lord. Amazing. And before he dies, we notice, by the way, Peter's not afraid. There's no inkling of concern. He doesn't write to give a prayer request that he would be released from prison and somehow escape crucifixion. No. His heart is for the sheep of Christ. Jesus had said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord. And, and Jesus and John, at the close of the Gospel of John, urged Peter, commanded Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And here we find Peter as an old man. It's been nearly 40 years since his Lord was crucified. And Peter is a mature man now. He is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the command of his Lord is is not only in his head, it's in his heart, and he writes to these sheep scattered throughout this region of the Roman Empire, warning them against certain trends that are taking place in the teaching that's going on in local churches, false teachers who are coming in. We'll learn more about that in chapter 2. He's deeply concerned. And the first concern he has is this idea that somehow you can be a Christian, that you can somehow be associated with Jesus, enjoy the benefit of, of knowing that your sins are forgiven through faith in the finished work of Christ, and then can somehow live your life how you want and not care about morality. This idea that somehow grace permits us to be careless and sin. And just think, oh, well, it's covered. And to counter that, Peter has spelled out in the opening verses of chapter 1 how a Christian is to live. And it is a life characterized by various qualities that we won't go through again. But in this faith, verse 5, it's it's a life characterized by moral excellence and godliness and so forth. Peter's writing to tell these sheep, don't you believe anyone When you become a Christian, you are called to a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how many times, in just the reading this morning, Peter refers to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea, of course, is very popular in our day and age. In fact, it's it's so the dominant reality that that it's news to professing evangelicals that God even cares, apparently, how we live. I mean, maybe there's a few big no-nos that we know we shouldn't do. But by and large, in our present time, 
We have far too few of us who are concerned about what is pleasing to the Lord and how we might live for him. And, and I say that as, as I've been convicted by this as well. We're being called to a life of godliness and holiness. But another trend that Peter is deeply concerned about is revealed in the passage we've read this morning. Pastor Peter is reminding us, he says, uh, he, and even though he, already, he says the believers already know them, verse 12, and we know we should live godly lives, but he's kindly, gently, pastorally reminding us about that. And he's concerned, verse 16, about the trend of a diminishing of the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his day and in our day, there were and are false teachers. And I remind you that false teachers don't come into churches with a big F emblazoned on their forehead. These are nice men. They're, they're always nice men. Satan always sends in nice, kind men. Because if he sent into churches really grumpy, mean, caustic men, nobody would listen to them. But these guys are these guys are nice, they're kind, they're moving speakers. You talk to them, this is who they are. And what Peter's concerned about is that they are increasingly diminishing the truth of the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. That's characteristic of our time. We have in our present time sought to take the gospel, rip it out of its context in Holy Scripture, plant it into our immediate context in which what's our craving in our current context? Our current craving is that my life be a little easier, a little more comfortable, that my psychological challenges be dealt with. We're all about self and self-improvement, how I feel. And, and so that's what sells. And so false teachers, both in Peter's day and our day, co-opt, hijack the gospel and make it and twist it for purposes never intended by God. They make it into a gospel that requires no obedience and holiness, a gospel that is primarily for here and now. Notice that? I want you to notice that. The gospel being preached today and what Peter was concerned about in his day is a gospel that's primarily about here and now. Little reference to the future, little reference to the coming of the kingdom of Christ. So much so that in Peter's day, apparently the false teachers were calling the teaching of Scripture and what Peter and the apostles had to say about the coming of Jesus as, as cleverly devised tales or myths, verse 16. The teaching in the Bible about the future coming of Christ, the reality of the kingdom of God in Christ on this earth was increasingly considered in the realm of myth or, or tales Certainly not to be central in the hearts and minds of believers. Something to be relegated to the corners or the closets of church life and Christian thinking. 
This was the gospel concern of Peter in his day, and this ought to be our concern in our day. It's a repackaging of the gospel of the Bible. It's a repackaging of the gospel that affirms the sinner and makes little or no mention of impending judgment. Do you notice that? Do you, I don't encourage you to do a lot of listening to um, bad teaching, but I just uh, last night even showed Chris a, um, a video of a recent sermon by a pastor of, of probably the largest, largest evangelical church in New Hampshire. And um, it's incredible. And sometimes you just, you need to see it. This is, Peter's not scaremongering. This is not theory that there's bad teaching out there. This is happening all the time. The gospel being repackaged, people not being told that the gospel saves you from the judgment to come, which is what the gospel of the New Testament is about. It's about preparing you for the judgment of God that is coming upon this earth and upon sinners so that you can escape judgment of your sins and that you by faith can be brought into union with Jesus Christ and that your sins can be accounted for as having been dealt with by Jesus and so that you now are not condemned and are blameless and holy in the sight of God. The gospel gets you ready for that future judgment day. Not so in the teaching that's going on today in many places it's all about here and now and as far as the kingdom oh yes churches still mention the kingdom of God it's a very trendy term actually it it works you know if if you if you don't want to teach the bible too much in its detail you still got to keep some religious phrases and terms and the kingdom of God just kind of sounds cool it's not cool it's concrete, and it's coming. And the kingdom of God is a concept we're going to look at this morning that is fixed. It is a reality. And the gospel prepares us for the future coming and to live. Listen, the gospel prepares you to participate in and be a citizen of the kingdom of Christ in all of its concrete, visible manifestation on this earth. But today and in Peter's day, false teachers were embarrassed about what the Bible has to say about future things. What the Bible has to say about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus is increasingly relegated in our day into the category of, well, you know, nobody really can know. That's not really practical. People really need to know, you know, what's helpful for them this week. And and I hope you know that the Scriptures have abundance of wisdom to help us with our week. And in fact, there's nothing more helpful. I've said this so many times, but if you live as a redeemed man or woman in light of the reality of the coming of your Lord, you are going to be changed. Your week is going to be changed because you're going to live even in the darkest moments you have hope because your Lord is coming and on the future you have a glorious kingdom that you're going to participate in. It's highly practical for our weeks here and now. But the gospel is not obsessed as we are 
with self. False teachers take the gospel, twist it, make it into something primarily for here and now to the almost the complete denying and ignoring of the future coming, the power and coming, Peter calls it, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Peter's an old man, and he's not going to get with the times. He hasn't noticed, as he prepares to die, the trends of the influential teachers. He doesn't care what scholars might have come up with a different reading of the Bible. He is insistent, verse 16. And notice, he's pastoral. He's reminding these people. He loves these people. And yet he's pretty bold in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised tales to the idea that somehow the coming and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be relegated into the category of old wives or old man's tales. Peter says no. He stands right in the face of all these teachers of the sentiment of the age and says We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the first coming. He told them about that. He is talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the return of Christ. And he says, I absolutely unequivocally deny that that is in the category of cleverly devised tales. We told you the truth. It's true. Yes, the kingdom of God is a reality that every believer, the moment that you are born again, the moment that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are brought into a relationship with the King. You are indwelt by the Spirit of the King. You are enabled to obey and learn the laws of the King. When you come into the church, you enjoy communion with the King and with the King's people. When you come into the church, you enjoy a little outpost of the visible kingdom of God. But no, the kingdom is not primarily fulfilled yet. Its primary fulfillment is yet to come. It is coming. And Peter is absolutely insistent upon this. And he is not hung up on a hobby horse. Right? He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is deeply concerned that the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus is, is being left behind. And he is at pains in verses 16 through 21 to make sure that the believers live their lives in light of the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was this truth of the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ so fixed in Peter's heart and soul? Why was he so gripped by it? Why in the face of his impending crucifixion is he 
is he caught up with the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's even said that he is, he is going to be with Jesus. His imminent return, I mean, rather, his imminent going to be with the Lord Jesus when he dies is, is right at hand. But it, that's not what's really in Peter's heart and mind. It, certainly, he's going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. But the next primary historical moment in the heart and mind of the Apostle Peter is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power. It's not a tale. It's not a myth. It's not a side interest. It's not a hobby horse. It is the reality that believers need to be prepared for. So why? Why was this so fixed in his soul? And in order to do that this morning, we're going to take the rest of our time to understand what Peter, why this experience for Peter on the holy mountain was so amazing. We need to do a little background study. But let me just be clear. The kingdom of Christ is not and will not be a mere mystical concept. You will know when the kingdom of God in Christ is on earth because every single individual will be bowing before Jesus Christ either willingly or unwillingly. His kingdom, according to the scriptures, and his rule will be in a visible objective reality that will fill the earth. Everyone and everything will serve him. Again, willingly or in feigned obedience, he will rule. Jesus will dominate this world. There will be no voting. There will be no elections. There will be no Congress or Senate or presidents, governors. There will be one king. And according to Zechariah 14, he will be king over all the earth. Absolute monarchy. That's something a little uncomfortable for Americans, but as believers, we need to embrace it. I love it as it is the Lord Jesus. Absolute monarchy, reigning in righteousness and unparalleled glory. I just want to ask you is that how you think of your life? Have you ever thought that that's what the gospel prepares you for? Because Yes, the gospel prepares you to escape the judgment of God for your sins, but the gospel fits and equips and prepares you to be in that kingdom. That's what the gospel prepares you for, the kingdom. And understand this, let's do a little background study together. Some familiar passages, and we're going back in the Old Testament forward to the experience that Peter references on the mount, sometimes we call it, of transfiguration when he saw the glory of Christ. Let's begin this morning in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. And I encourage you to note these passages and have them, if not memorized, marked and fixed 
as key passages in the scriptures about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. Psalm 2 describes this world where the nations are in an uproar. We see that right now as not only individuals but nations are in opposition to and rebellion against God. We certainly see that unfortunately in our our nation right now where we defy God and him his laws on nearly every front. And so this world is in rebellion against God, rebellion against Christ. Again, if somehow the kingdom of God is is fully manifested right now, what a what a what a different reading of scripture. We live in a context right now where the world is in rebellion against God, rebellion against Christ. If the kingdom of Christ is fully realized fully here now, then Christ is, frankly, a very weak, pathetic king. The king, he is king, but his kingdom has not come and yet in fullness, but it will. And in Psalm 2, verse 7, God calls, after, sorry, after calling the kings to account, God declares that there is one, a son or descendant of David, that God is going to appoint to rule over this world. There, verse 7 reads, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the one who is Jesus Christ. And he is testifying that God, the Father, said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that makes us a little nervous because we think, uh, isn't God the Son eternal? And the answer is, of course, yes, he is one with the Father. But what this is speaking of is upon his incarnation, upon God the Son becoming a man, God makes him to be his king, his servant in the line of David that will rule over all the earth. So this is his appointment to reign. God has appointed Christ, Jesus, to reign. And verse 8, God is going to give to him the nations as his inheritance, the very ends of the earth as his possession. And as for the king, he will break the rebellious nations with a rod of iron, shatter them like earthenware. Violent imagery. And we don't see anything like that right now, but we will. When Christ comes a second time and sets his feet down on this earth, he will enter into battle and he will impose his righteous rule on this wicked, rebellious world. But I want you to remember that phrase where God the Father says to the Son, You are my Son. One of the marks of the Messiah is that he would have God's full unqualified approval and love. Turn next to Isaiah Isaiah 42, verse 1. By the way, Peter, as a boy, as a young man, and as a grown man, doubtless knew these passages even before he met Jesus. In fact, he followed Jesus because Peter longed for the coming of the kingdom. He longed for this king. He knew and had heard these passages. 
And in Isaiah 42, even in the days when Judah was going to be overrun by the Babylonians, God put out hope to his people, promises about a future king. And this is not new. This is something God has been promising, that one day in the descendant of David, God would appoint to be his servant to rule on this earth. And God in Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant, this is speaking of the Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will reign with justice. Oh, how we see injustice among the nations right now, right? God's appointed king, the Christ, will rule on this earth and bring forth justice to all the nations. And not only would the Messiah, the Christ, be God's chosen one, his beloved one, but his kingdom would be like any other kingdom that has ever been or ever will be. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The kingdom of this beloved son, this descendant of David, the servant of the Lord, will be unlike any other kingdom. Again, yes, we enjoy some aspects of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ now. We worship here this morning as representatives of the kingdom. We enjoy the citizenry of the kingdom here now this morning, but by no means has the kingdom come even close to its full extent. And how do we know that? Because of its extent and its power that is to come. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel is receiving a vision of basically the unfolding of history. There's one kingdom, rebellious kingdom in this world that's going to follow another And then Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. So this is a scene of the very throne room of God Almighty. And then down in verse 13, Daniel keeps looking. He says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Previous to this, Daniel had seen a, a vision of a great stone that comes down and crushes all other kingdoms and fills the extent of the earth. The kingdom of Christ on earth will fill the entire earth, and it is a kingdom that will be complete, utter dominion, and it will have no end. 
This is what Peter means by the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples of Jesus knew these Old Testament prophecies. And while the disciples had many faults, believing in what the Bible had to say about the coming kingdom was not one of them. They took the Bible at face value about the coming kingdom. And note, Jesus never did anything to discourage or diminish their expectation for a visible, objective reign of God on earth through the kingdom of the Messiah. In fact, Jesus, God's servant, just stoked the flame of their heart. Turn with me for a few moments to Matthew chapter 16 and 17. Matthew 16, verse 28 Matthew 16, verse 28. Jesus is teaching. Peter has, in chapter 16, confessed that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's in Matthew 16, verse 16. And at the end of chapter 16, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some of you who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And Jesus loved that title, Son of Man, and he's making a direct reference back to the vision of Daniel, that son, that one like a Son of Man who is of such glory and stature that he can walk right up to the blazing throne of the Ancient of Days and receive from the Father a kingdom. And Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you what, some of you are not even going to die before you see the Son of Man, the Messiah, coming in his kingdom. And then verse 17 And I'm reading this because this is the passage, this is the experience that many years later in 2 Peter, what Peter refers back to. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. My well, my beloved Son. Psalm 2. This is my Son. You are my Son. Daniel 7. Son of man. Isaiah 42. This is my servant, my Son, with whom I am well pleased. On that mountain, which may have been Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in that region, often covered with snow. We don't know exactly which mountain Peter refers to when he says the holy mountain, but it was a high place. 
and Peter, James, and John were brought by Jesus up to that place. And on that mountain, God sent Moses and Elijah, the law, Moses representing the law of the Old Testament, Elijah representing the prophets. In other words, the witness of the entire Old Testament scriptures embodied in Moses and Elijah were there to testify to Peter, James, and John, the apostles, that in fact Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, the fulfillment of Psalm 2, the fulfillment of Psalm 7. He is the beloved Son of God, the Messiah. And when they saw Jesus blazing with light, like the light of the sun, like the light of the Ancient of Days himself, they saw a preview of the kingdom because they saw with their eyes the king in all his glory. And they heard with their ears audibly the voice of God that this Jesus is my beloved son. This is your king. Bow before him. Jesus, or rather Peter, Peter has seen the kingdom Not to its full extent, no man has yet. But Peter saw the kingdom because he saw the king with his own eyes. And the blazing glory and excellence of Jesus Christ was burned into Peter's soul. He knew Jesus. He loved Jesus. He revered Jesus He was familiar with Jesus. But for Peter, Jesus is primarily his majestic Lord and King. Jesus' face shines like the sun. He is the Son of Man, like the one presented in Daniel 7. And he is the servant of the Lord, with whom the Lord is well pleased. Notice, turn to Second Peter now, how Peter has alluded to the truth of who Jesus is in the opening chapter. In verse 3, we have already covered this, but he says, Peter writes that Jesus, our Lord, verse 2, has divine power. He saw his miracles. Peter saw Jesus' miracles. He saw him raise the dead. But that moment up on the mountain when he saw Jesus in all his glory persuaded Peter like no other moment that Jesus possesses divine power, one with the Father. Jesus Christ, according to Peter in verse 3, has his own glory and excellence. Where did Peter get that from? Certainly the testimony of scriptures, but on that mountain he saw and heard the glory and excellence of Jesus And notice that Peter calls Jesus, again, with whom he was more familiar than just about anyone, maybe the Apostle John, exception. More familiar with with Jesus than any man that's ever lived. And yet Peter doesn't refer to Jesus as my bud or my pal or my co-pilot. Like so many of us who are cool today want to call Jesus. 
he refers to Jesus as our Lord, verse 16, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 1. He is Jesus our Lord, verse 2. He is, verse 11, our Lord and Jesus Christ. He is, verse 8, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is, verse 16, our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but do you see who Peter thinks Jesus is? He's the king. And now some false teachers are going around promoting the idea that the gospel is primarily here, that Jesus is primarily your guru, your helper to help you figure out how to have a little bit better week and not be so down. And they are completely diminishing the idea that Jesus Christ is your king and your Lord. And that's the dominant trend in our day. No need or little need for holy, obedient Christian living, and frankly, no interest or tolerance for what the Bible says about the coming of Christ. And I'm not even talking about your particular conviction on the coming of Christ as to, you know, we've had a lot uh, of talk in our church in the last six months about last times the men's study has been eschatology. I'm not talking about what your particular conviction is on the timing of the return of Christ. I'm talking that in our day, Nobody really talks about the return of Christ and his coming in power and the fact that the kingdom of God is coming. And so before he departs to be with Christ, Peter will have these believers know about the kingdom that is coming and that the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is no cleverly devised tale. It's not a myth. It's not something that you should think about once in a while. Curiosity. It is, I don't know how to say this as, as clear as I can. The kingdom of Christ is an objective reality that every single one of you here this morning must prepare for because you're going to go into it whether you know it or not. And you will either be one of Christ's people or you will be one of his enemies. But the kingdom is coming and he's not checking your schedule to see if it fits. It doesn't matter when your reunion is, especially younger people, we think sometimes, I used to think this when I was younger, well, you know, I hope before Jesus comes, I, I want to get married, there's a few things I want to do first, and I understand that, but I want to encourage the young people this morning, if you know Jesus Christ, you are, you are not going to miss out on any joy in the kingdom of Christ on earth. Uh, I don't know, I'm not a prophet, but I'm pretty sure if you know Jesus Christ, and you're a young person, and, and if he was to come this week, and maybe you weren't able to fulfill some of the, uh, the good desires that you have in life, when we were, if we were with Christ in heaven, and when we come together, I'm pretty sure that you'll look at me, and you'll say, Pastor Gabe, this kingdom of Jesus, this is pretty good. <laughs> when he will be king over all the earth, no more injustice, no more lies, no more deceit, no more war, no more rape, no more abuse, 
No more stealing. No more lust. No more dead worship. Everything life, everything pure, everything lovely, everything loving. And everything, as we sang this morning, to the praise of the Lamb that was slain. It's coming. And so he depart, before he departs, Peter wants these sheep of Christ to not give in to the trend of the present day. To live for Jesus here and now, absolutely. To be his kingdom representatives. But to believe the scriptures and in their hearts to always have an eye to the horizon, to that future time when Jesus will reign here in power and glory. And so Peter, in case anyone doubts that, 2 Peter chapter 1 references in verses 17 and 18 that experience on the mountain. For when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Notice how Peter refers to the Father, the majestic glory. It's a beautiful title for God. God, the Father, said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is no cleverly devised tale. Peter, to paraphrase, says, I saw the kingdom because I saw the king. You want to bank everything on the coming of the kingdom and make sure you are ready and live in light of it. Some of us here this morning in closing might think, well, if I had an experience like that up on a mountain and I saw Jesus all of a sudden lit like fire of the sun with glory and I actually heard the audible voice of God the Father from the heaven then um, I'd believe more fully in the coming kingdom and next Sunday morning we're going to learn Peter says actually no (laughs) because actually you have something in your possession that is an even more certain and sure witness to the certainty of the coming of the power and the glory of Christ. And it's Holy Scripture. Verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure. And what's he talking about? Verse 20, the prophecy of Scripture. The Bible is a more clear and certain testimony to the coming and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ than if you were on that mountain with Peter, James, and John. Wow. So next Sunday morning, we'll examine that truth. I just want to close with one observation that struck me this week, was new for me, Peter never, has never gotten over this transfiguration of Jesus. It, it's fixed in his heart and mind. Interesting that the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, the opening verses, refers to what we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. In other words, 
It doesn't reference specifically the transfiguration, but it seems there that the Apostle John is, is writing on the authority of, hey, I, I've not only heard Jesus teach a sermon on the mount, I've seen Jesus blazing on the holy mountain. And then very interesting in the book of James, and I'm sorry, I don't know the verse, you can look it up later. It's interesting that James is the only one in the New Testament that refers to Jesus by this, our glorious Lord Jesus. Glorious Lord Jesus. Peter, James, and John never got over the sight and the sound of that moment on the mountain. And they don't want us to either. We may not have been on the mountain with them, but in the word of God, we have a sure, certain witness to the coming and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom will come. His, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, we want to live effectively for you here and now. We want to live holy lives. Please help us. And we pray that you would teach us again more about the kingdom to come. Not so that we would somehow wait around doing nothing until Jesus comes, but so that we might live lives wisely. Lives of, of responsibility. That we might live our lives in the reality of the soon coming kingdom of Christ. Lord Jesus, we want to have a life to offer up to you of honor and of gratitude. We want to start living like kingdom citizens now. We want your church to be a visible outpost of your kingdom to come. So please may this be. We ask this in your name. Amen.